In mid-2005, Sir Michael Rocks hit up the producer Chuck English on MySpace looking for beats. The two had initially met through a mutual friend in college, but like so many relationships of the social media era, their online interactions cemented their friendship. They bonded over a love of everything from EPMD to thrifted starter jackets. Together as the cool kids, they'd create a sound that felt retro but futuristic and could still work in a mix with mainstream artists like Lil Wayne. Diplo and A-Track were early cosigns, and within two years, they were packing out shows across Chicago. Too far left for radio, they found a home on sites like Fakeshore Drive, leading to a daytime slot at the Pitchfork Festival. After that, they were international. This is Chuck English. In 2008, we did 232 shows, I believe. I couldn't put together a week where I was home, like for longer than a week. So that was how we made our money. And I think that year, independently, like we probably took home like 1.4. And I never really was documented like that. I didn't feel like that was people's business, but it, it worked. The blogs led to promoters being able to, you know, book you for shows. And they didn't have to put like six headliners together to make they, they bread. The cool kids would do 250-person rooms and sell out reliably. With that business model, we just rolled that. And then I took the Jimi Hendrix approach a little bit, and we did our first real tour in the UK before we came back here and did it. I remember when we came back here, all the blogs were like, oh, they were, you know, killing it overseas, and now they're back here. And I was like, man, that shit was too easy. That shit worked. <laughs> that shit worked like clockwork. Like for a while, we didn't even need PR. You know, one person posted, it's gone everywhere. Now it's just, it seems like that is such a foreign concept. You know what I mean? Like you can put something out and, you know, word of mouth would get you shows, but that's how it used to work. For years, artists and bloggers focused on independence, not because they preferred to but because that's the world they lived in. Big business was woefully late, making any gestures seem like funny money. But by 2009, record labels were spending their days talent scouting websites, media institutions were looking for internet investments, and XXL would hand over their valuable real estate to the children of Narite. Soon, lots of folks would be laughing all the way to the bank. Where it's the real. And this is episode six, Pocket Watching. Wale wasn't listed on Glastonbury's June 2007 lineup. He ran out during Mark Ronson's set. His only job was to rhyme over the incredible bongo band song Apache. Glastonbury, the British rock festival, was often headlined by groups like The Smiths and Oasis. But that Sunday, Wale, largely unknown outside of Washington, D.C., fucking electrified. For three and a half minutes, he was in the crowd, climbing back on stage, running across and freestyling off the dome, all without missing a beat or running out of breath. 
If he sweat through his graphic tee or fresh-fitted, it did not show. Wale was a revelation. Ronson, who would be nominated a few months later for a producer of the year Grammy, primarily for his work with Amy Winehouse, was a huge fan of Wale's mixtapes, regularly playing his music Friday nights on New York's East Village radio. When it came time to hit festival dates, Mark had one man in mind to join him and his band, Wale. Rich Kleiman, Mark's business partner, would reach out. We were on these tour buses with like, could be Boy George and Duran Duran one night, and then like Lily Allen, Amy Winehouse, Daniel Merriweather, Sandy Gold, and Mark. And it was just, it was a fun ass time. And Wale, to his credit, you know, again, insane culture shock. The guy just came in there and kind of just was able to like musically fit in. But you know, I think that he couldn't even understand the magnitude of what he was doing. What Wale was doing was an entire ocean and lifetime away from working at DTLR, a sneaker store at the local mall where the aspiring rap star and his co-workers would sneak his CD into the sound system, pushing his music on customers while working off commission. Dan Weissman, who would go on to be Wale's manager, first got wind of him in 2006. I went to D.C. for a weekend to visit a friend, and I asked him if he knew any up-and-coming artists in D.C. I had this you know, delusional notion that I was going to get into the music business and thought it'd be great to find someone to manage. And my buddy was like, oh, you got to check out this guy, Wale. And he played me Dig Dug, which was unlike anything I'd ever heard in my entire life. He you know, mentioned like SBs in the song. And I was like, big sneakerhead back then. And I was like, wow, this guy's kind of talking my language. I, you know, I don't really hear anyone else that's talking to me, white Jewish guy living in Beverly Hills. He was a phenomenal lyricist. And I could tell his pop culture IQ was also really off the chain. Wale's lyrics could be just as slick and packed with streetwear references as they were pro wrestling and Seinfeld storylines. Bun B, whose songs focused on street life, but whose conversations extended to sneakers or politics or the TV show The Office, found a kindred spirit in Wale. Yeah, no, it's definitely the same kind of sense of humor. Very dry, very dark. But then also knowing that you have different cultural cue points than your contemporaries and being comfortable with that. That help keeps me unique amongst my peers. And I think that's something that Wale takes advantage of too. Like he knows he's different and he takes comfort in his difference. But just like you're, you're not as cool as me. Like you're not really fresh. Somebody shops for you. Like, you're cool as kind of manufactured. Wale would march to his own beat. Rather than team with DJ Drama to do a Gangsta Grills, he did mixtapes with New York club DJ Nick Catchdubs. He was the number one posted rap artist on Disco Bell, a then-popular Swedish dance blog. The first place to put Wale on a cover was Herb, an alternative magazine that matched hip-hop with electronic music and culture. Wale stood in between the two Parisian members of Justice, whose upbeat song D-A-N-C-E, the DC rapper, had remixed to viral success. The white audiences he'd gained were cool, but he was a black man and wanted to be rooted for by people who looked like him. A proud first-generation Nigerian-American, 
His upbringing in DC in the 90s was equally Sir Shina Peters and George Costanza. Washington had deep roots in jazz, go-go, and punk music, but its hip-hop history was super limited and hyper-localized. This is Sneaker Man Dan, Wale's best friend and co-worker at DTLR. Here there's uh, four quadrants in the city, northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest. Then you got the neighboring counties in Maryland from PG to MoCo, and then Alexandria and Arlington in Virginia. But if you come here, you'll realize that there is a collective from the metropolitan area, wherever the metro connects, but there's also like sharp differences from each exact region. And everybody's super secluded and the man in their own town. So it's not that they don't really support their own, but it's that they over support their own. It's always like, oh, I got somebody from my neighborhood. They don't look at the area as a whole, but rather their individual blocks. Like there's no gangs out here either too much it's like your neighborhood and your corner and you just kind of rep that to the most with no disrespect to you know the pantheon of mcs that come from dc um before wale he's one of the first people trying to legitimately put dc dmv on the map like in hip-hop he's like the first i think there's a lot more pressure especially in the early years of wale on, on his shoulders than arguably any of his peers where it's like I have to put not just my city but my general region on the map so he's trying to put his city on the national map while trying to make a presence for himself in a city that's different from the way that the city typically represents itself so there's a lot of burden that Wale carries on his shoulder. And you have put that on top of the idea of his representation of the Nigerian community within hip-hop, and you hit the anxiety trifecta. DC wasn't like New York or LA, and Wale couldn't yet stand shoulder to shoulder with a Jay-Z or a Snoop Dogg. But a passion burned inside him to show that his city and he himself were on the level. Some people thought he was nuts or his ego was too big. Wale's passion had been misconstrued since his days of attending a handful of high schools and three colleges, where football coaches and teachers didn't know how to take him. With his music, he found a healthy outlet for his jokes, jabs, and dreams. Spending countless hours on the internet forums of Nike Talk, where only the upper echelon of sneaker collectors would congregate, and being a regular in New York's downtown scene, Wale and his inner circle found value in being exclusive. I mean, Dan Weissman's own blog was named Elitist. They would run their own race, setting the pace in Nike foam posits. We really made a conscious decision to go after pacemakers. I actually even made this diagram that showed how culture and taste and stuff moved. And you know, at the top of the pyramid, you had what I call Tier Zero, which is named after you know the best Nike account you could possibly have, where you get all the best shit. And then you got 5% tastemakers, 15% early adopters, and the rest are followers. If you could target that tier zero, those tastemakers and those early adopters, well, that would just trickle down to the followers. So that was really our goal and how we attack things. They would put this strategy into practice, selling out venues in New York and L.A. with Lindsay Lohan, Jay-Z, and Leonardo DiCaprio in VIP. Even Diddy tweeted his support. Walking in you'd hear an energized band and see something that was just as DMV. Wale's logo, designed from a Tiffany Dunk shoelace by the city's own Good Bully, twisted into the style of the Washington Nationals W. 
Wale, whose original Twitter name was Wale DC, held out hope that someone like him, a different kind of rapper from a different kind of city, would one day appeal to the editors and audience of XXL magazine. And amazingly enough, in late summer 08, he was asked to come to New York to share a cover photo shoot with nine other different rappers. Currency was visiting Chicago when he got the call. It was fucking huge. I was at the cool kid's house smoking and fucking playing video games in Chicago. That was our first time hanging, so we, we just kept hanging, and we didn't do any work. And then I got a, a call from a number I didn't know. Like, they called me like three times in a row, so then I called back, and they're like, yeah, can you come to New York on such and such day, bling, 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 for the fucking double XL shit. They're like, don't tell anybody. There's a few other artists going to be on cover with you, but we can't tell you, and they're telling anybody either. I'm like, oh, shit, you know. So fucking I hung up. And then I'm like, so do I say anything? You know what I'm saying? Like, so I tell Chuck and them immediately, I'm like, yo, fucking, uh, that was double XL, man. Like, I'm going to be on the, the cover of the fucking magazine for something. Double XL was putting together a cover with the 10 new artists they foresaw doing big things in the year ahead, 2009. When Elliot Wilson was editor in chief, their covers were kingmakers. Jay Z. 50 Cent, DMX, all got their stories told and profiles elevated, owning newsstands a month at a time. But since Elliot had been fired, XXL was on a roller coaster ride. Sales were down. Ads were down. And yet rap publications were still doing stories and photo shoots the old way, planned months in advance, which left them late to what felt like everything. Mickey Facts. So after I did Fader, I did URB magazine, then I did Spin magazine, then I did Billboard, and then I did Bowling stuff. Like it was just one after the other every week. The last magazine to pick me up, coincidentally, was the Source and XXL. Like rap press is always slow. They get it last, and then they wonder why like certain rap acts have white fans first. It's like because the rap publication was acting like this shit was weird. And the Faders and the Herbs and the you know, those other magazines were covering things. So while we were trying to do something different, wasn't barking up this, you know, steep hill, trying to be like, hey, we rap too, or listen to us. Like, fuck that. <laughs> Daytuan Thomas, the new editor-in-chief, looked up to Elliot Wilson in a lot of ways. He admired his leadership, but knew that he couldn't emulate it. He knew that just walking in YN's footsteps and poking the competition was not the move. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit different than L. He's very very confrontational. He's very abrasive. So my thing was I have to out idea everybody. And the biggest idea that I was able to come away with while being the leader of XL was the freshman issue. That first amalgamation of the leaders of the new school issue where L had like Saigon and Young Dro and Lil Boozy and all of them and white coats and stuff, that particular issue didn't do as well as they thought it would. Elliot's freshman-type issue had introduced the world to Saigon by bringing up his drug-dealing past, a pair of attempted murder charges, and the seven-year prison sentence he received before he could legally drive. Plies was included for, quote, speaking from that prison mentality, and Gorilla Zoe was, quote, Atlanta's latest trapper-turned-rapper. These were nine street guys as well as skateboard hero Lupe Fiasco. Currency bought that issue the day it came out. 
that was my only reading material in my bathroom. And every day I would look at that shit and be like, this will never happen. They pretty much saying these are rap stars, even if you don't know them yet. So that, that makes them a rap star. You know what I'm saying? It makes you a rapper. And Currency was a rapper. After you'd left all the New Orleans labels, right? Like all three of them. And you went on your own. What's one time that you felt within yourself or, or maybe because of someone else that you were on a wrong or let's say difficult path? Every day that I saw my dad, <laughs> each time he was like, that was a real situation. Oh, no. oh, he'll inform me of what greatness the labels are achieving without me. <laughs> Master T just made a cereal. Lil Wayne was in the limousine with Delicious from Slave of Love. Like, man, hey, bro. I can't, there's nothing I can do, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I already, I did this, you know, I got a, I got a, had a young guy saying, I got to stand on it. I got to stand on business. <laughs> this is it. Daytuan had been surveying the landscape. At that time, every magazine that was, like, geared toward hip-hop and some of the ones that were starting to, you know, branch off into hip-hop, they all wanted Wayne, all wanted 50, all wanted Jay. I got tired of that. Not tired of the artists themselves, but just tired of saying, like, here's the best. What kind of story are you going to write about Jay? After? You know what I'm saying? And I also wanted a new way to find talent within magazines. It was really tough to be able to break new people in magazines on a large scale. So giving them a cover at that juncture was, was big. I can't front. I did want whatever competition to be like, God damn it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I wanted that too. Ahead of the 09 cover, everything flipped. Daytuan wanted 10 kids on the magazine. Forget the fur coats of covers past. These kids looked like a flag football team. Charles Hamilton wore a pink button-up. Kid Cudi's jeans were skin tight. And the fact that you saw Asher Roth, a preppy white kid from Philly, would have been unimaginable two years earlier. A commenter on Nike Talk said, Wale the only dude on there that's looking like he got money, simply because he wore a BBC jacket. That downtown, Lower East Side scene, a repudiation of everything happening in XXL, was now championed in those very pages. Felton Brown of PardonMeDuke.com Yeah, they basically jacked the block shit because they only came out monthly. And then they realized there was a grassroots thing going on on the internet that they didn't have a control over because the information was moving much faster. The 10 freshmen made themselves at home at Industrious Studios over by the West Side Highway. Currency brought the weed but forgot the papers. Asher brought the blunts but didn't have the weed. Friendship was in the air. The moment everything clicked was when Asher Roth was like, yo, I'm making a beer run. Anybody want anything? And he, like, he went and got beer. And it was so Asher Roth because if you looked at his music and the videos and all that, that was his lifestyle. Like, yo, where the cat gat? Like, what we doing? And it fit because it, here's this like cool white boy with a bunch of black dudes. And he's like, yo, I'm making this beer run, man. People would pair off and freestyles would break out. Corey Guns, considered one of the great lyricists of the era, was honored to be amongst these guys. Everybody's versatile. Everybody has their own styles. Everybody's from different places, walks of life. Everybody creates differently. So I feel like meshing everyone together and actually showing that it brings a broader 
perspective for hip hop and it shows like the unity and how dope everybody can be in their own right, you know? Cameras captured everyone laughing and getting along. Well, almost everybody, according to Mickey. I had put out a record called Sublime, which was kind of like taking names of MCs that were bubbling at the time. And I wasn't really dissing. It was more like just playful banter. So me and Wale had some issues off of that. So me and Wale didn't really kind of speak at that time. Um, and then Cuddy kind of chose Wale's side as well. So me, and, and again, we were all cool. But after I put that record out, it kind of severed that relationship with those two guys. But no matter any small slights, Mickey understood the larger picture. It was it was everything to kind of to be this kid from the Bronx who collected XXL. His mother told him, why are you collecting this magazine? What is this doing for you? It's not doing anything for you. And then two years later, showing her, hey, look, this is what it did for me. So to be on that cover, it was like my way of saying, I did this for all of us. It was one of the best moments of my life, honestly, because it was pure, it was natural. There was no politics. I didn't have a cosign. It was just the strength of the people that put me there. It was the blogs. It was the internet that put me there. It wasn't a label. It wasn't no big artist that, no, it was literally the blogs that put me on that cover. Daytuan left the set early and couldn't hide his smile as he hopped into his car. And somehow, from the time I left the shoot to the time I got to Queens to pick up my daughters, there was video of at least four of the 10 freshmen picking out clothes and talking about shit on Nairite. And I don't know who called me or who showed me. I was livid, bro. Like, out of control, mad, picking up my daughters from their Catholic school. <laughs> I'm in a Catholic school parking lot cursing crazy. By 2009, Complex, part magazine, part buyer's guide, had established itself as the premier publication at the nexus of consumerism and culture for young men. An eight-figure round of investment into the complex media network positioned them as a major player flush with cash. But just 20 months before, then-CEO Rich Antonello was on a sinking ship. Yeah, I mean, uh, as in any good business, very often the idea comes from necessity. I wish it was like, oh, we had all this money and everything was going so well. But a lot of it was two things would occur on a consistent basis. A, not only was I running the company, but I was also really leading the sales efforts at that point. So it was very difficult to go into AT&T, McDonald's, and all these companies saying that, you know, we are the voice of the next generation from a youth culture perspective, but we didn't have a foundational and leading voice from a digital perspective yet. On top of that, Rich would say, Complex was a men's magazine owned by the fashion brand Echo, operating with zero money in the bank, and creditors knocking down their office doors. He had to come up with a plan to save jobs, to diversify his brand, and all the while maintain relevance. If we were just going to manipulate and reverse engineer our business as an ad network, we would have just gone after the biggest sites. But we chose the best voices. We went for the nuance. We went for the highest quality 
voices there, not the biggest sites in each of those categories. Like we could have easily just like tried to go after like, I mean, Jesus, I'm just trying to think of like some of the lowest common denominator music sites at that point. But, you know, like only the streets knew about Na Right at that time. They hadn't exploded yet. What was going to win was power of voice and differentiation of it. And to me, that gave me the confidence. Complex Media Network was born, and with no time to waste, they signed up Na Right as well as three lifestyle blogs. The deals were essentially 50-50 revenue shares. Complex wouldn't buy the companies, the sites, or the IP, nor would they control the site's editorial. Noah Callahan Bever, who had written the legendary 50 Cent Eminem Dr. Dre cover story for XXL, was named the chief content officer at Complex. For Complex, it was an opportunity to have a meaningfully large audience digitally without us having to invest crazily in the content because the nature of the relationship was that we just represented them on the ad side. For the blog guys, it didn't really change their day-to-day very much except that they started catching substantial checks. And I think for Complex, it just sort of fast-tracked us to a place where we could have much larger conversations with these big advertisers. What separated Complex from other ad networks was that these were exclusive deals with the blogs. 100% of ad inventory, both sponsorships and integration, was sold and managed in-house. If you joined Complex's network, you put your entire trust in Rich Antonello. And why not? Rich was not only a dynamic leader, but he knew of what he spoke. He began his career with advertising giant Saatchi and Saatchi Worldwide, handling media planning for Procter & Gamble, among others. So Rich had this idea of, you know, what would become the vertical ad network, which was, okay, if we're having conversations with Procter & Gamble, McDonald's, et cetera, et cetera, and selling them on the demographic of the complex reader and their lifestyle, how much harder is it to then say, we also represent these other properties that that person is really into. And here, we know that the internet is a wild, crazy place with a zillion brands, and you as an ad buyer maybe aren't totally up on top of what the hottest sneaker blog is this month or what the best new rap site is, but we can help you because we've got this organized under one umbrella and you can make one spend with us. We've just made your lives much easier. For early partners, like most of the new music cartel, this was not just a chance to focus on the work of blogging. It was the proper reward for years of sacrifice on a passion project. Here's Mecca from Two Dope Boys. The revenue finally allowed me to live life the way I had really wanted. Like, Shake and I, as I mentioned, we came from struggling and both of us were able to buy our first homes through the revenues of the website. So I can't say anything can top that. Revenue was measured by how many page views a website got. The more popular a site was, the more valuable the real estate at the top or sides of the page were. I'll just say this, like, you know, um, if you imagine that Complex is selling advertising at a 20 to $25 CPM. So basically for every thousand page views, you're making $25. Now, let's say that, you know, you're not going to monetize every single page view. Let's say you monetize like 60% of your page views. But, you know, if you're a website that's doing five or six million page views, 
that's a not insubstantial amount of money to be generating on a monthly basis. By Noah's math, that could be $90,000 a month. Google AdSense, the more or less default means of monetizing a blog, provided a 25 cent CPM and bottom of the barrel ads. SK absolutely understood the difference. Complex did a lot for me. They certainly made me a lot of money during a certain period of the site's run. Soon, four blogs became 15, then 25. In time, there would be more than 100 sites under the Complex umbrella. Even the proudly independent originator All Hip Hop would become a partner. Here's Chuck Creekmer. From a business perspective, the bigger sites only made sense. And so you saw the rise of other destinations like Complex that were massive in scale and could accommodate large amounts of traffic and therefore advertisers as well. They had the real estate to accommodate those big spins. John Gotti of the smoking section had tried to do it all himself. In order for us to grow, you know, you had to be able to commit time to it and be able to commit time to it. It was going to take money to do that. When I went out and tried to secure ads on my own, I think I secured maybe three. And by that third one, it was one of the biggest ones that I had gotten. It was for like a 30-day campaign, maybe 1200 bucks, and I was super excited. And then when that month was up, the company was nowhere to be found. It dissolved. They were gone. I couldn't get paid, and I was so pissed off. I was like, I would want to buy a plane ticket and go shoot these motherfuckers. That's when I got to realize, like, yo, securing the ads and dealing with clients on that level, it really wasn't for me. I wanted to do the work, the media side of it, the creating side of it, and let somebody else deal with some of the, the business side of it. For Gotti, as well as Rizzo of The Wrap-Up and Nigel D. of Real Talk New York, the partners that made sense were Jarrett Meyer and Brian Brader, the same guys who built up the indie hip-hop label Raucous Records. Their network, soon to be renamed Uprocks, might have shared the same spirit as Raucous, but the vision was mainstream. In their push to become the voice of pop culture, they'd battled it out with the big boys, most notably Complex Media. But it would be hard to compete with Complex's favorite son, Na Wright. Um, SK, if we're painting a picture of, of you know, how your website um, built up and we're starting from zero and, you know, there is a point in your first year where you go 500, 600, 1,000, just at your peak, can you give us a, a ballpark number of how many views you were getting in a, in a day? Uh, probably 3 million. What? Oh, wait, okay. <laughs> can you just, can you say that in a sentence? Uh, so at my peak, Nowright was probably doing 3 million impressions a day. I think that if you see like a lot of the content that, you know, sort of helped Complex grow dramatically online was really part of sort of a conversation that we were having with our network partners. Um, because, you know, we would see... We, we produce, you know, X story or X list and SK likes it and SK posts it and it gets a lot of traffic for us. And, it, you know, so it's accomplishing for him. It's giving him something new to post. And for us, it's, you know, driving new audience to us. Um, and so I think, you know, both of us were very cognizant of um, 
you know, how this relationship could sort of um, help both parties. It's safe to say that Wright played a humongous role, not just in building Complex's digital business, but in saving it all together. By every metric, audience, influence, and revenue, the blogs owned the space. And the titans of the Complex and Uproxx networks, Wright and the smoking section, had mutual admiration. Whereas I was a casual blogger who kind of just rattled off quick posts they really put the editorial work in and kind of made it more of like an online magazine so i had a great amount of respect for what they were doing they had a really diverse and varied array of writers and voices whereas not right is the grimy new york rat blog they kind of hit on everything I really loved what they were doing. Gotti was a great dude. I had interacted with him through email. So when I believe he brought the idea to me and, you know, it wasn't even a question. I was I was with it from from jump. That idea would be a test of the blog's collective power in the real world and a huge step out of their comfort zone. Organizing and producing an all day showcase at the music festival portion of South by Southwest. South by Southwest is an annual gathering in Austin, Texas, with focuses on film, technology, and music. Founded in 1987, the music portion leaned heavily towards rock bands, singer-songwriters, anything featuring a guitar. Some rap acts had snuck through, but by 2009, the emphasis really began to shift. Houston native Matt Sanzala had been pushing that boulder up the hill independently for years, but he'd now been brought in by the festival. For his second go-round, he imagined a massive pairing, Now right and the smoking section together. They would play off what they found to be overstated perceptions of their work in naming the showcase bootleggers and tastemakers. Here's Dimples from the smoking section. I don't think they anticipated the crowd that showed up to show up, and the crowd did, and it was almost surreal because up until then, I think I personally was looking at like blog readers as fictitious people. You guys make sense in theory, but I don't know if you actually exist. 2009 was my first South by Southwest, and that was one of those experiences where it was like, oh, wait, wait, this online thing is a real community, like in real life. Anybody who was kind of bubbling at that time came through. And if they weren't performing, I remember one time I went outside during the middle of all of it and Kid Cudi, 88 Keys, and maybe like Blue were standing on the sidewalk eating pizza, just talking. Like nobody crowded around them or anything like that. They were just three guys. Some people probably didn't even recognize them. This is David Dennis of The Smoking Section. It's one thing to like do stuff on the internet, but like when you're walking down the street and artists and managers and like people on the street are recognizing what you're doing, like that really sort of changed a lot of stuff for all of us. I would imagine SK felt the same way too, because I mean, he was like God in Austin. You know, those South by Southwest showcases were a big highlight of my entire blogging career. Because that's like an opportunity to, rather than just write about or post videos, to actually interact with the artists and see them perform live and bring 
like-minded fans together and party and enjoy the music in a shared space. So 2009, I'm sure you know, we had an epic lineup. Even looking back on that now, I look at that lineup and I can't believe we put that together. There was no question that the Now Right Smoking Section Showcase was the can't-miss rap event of the festival. When I saw the list of who we had the first year, it ended up being like pretty much the entire freshman cover that year. I guess they were making their list concurrently when we were doing our show. So we had B.O.B., Mickey Fax, Currency, that whole crew, Charles Hamilton. And I looked backstage. I was like, this is the entire freshman cover. And they're here like at our show. And like part of the reason they were on that cover was because we were writing about them from the beginning. At the end of the day, yeah, we did it for the people. But we were also doing it to champion artists that we thought were good and should be heard. So to see them reciprocate and understand like what it meant for us, like, yo, they do come through and perform, like it was dope. By 2010, rappers at South By were like stand-up comedians in New York, hitting four or five stages in a night. After Wiz crushed that year's Nah Right smoking section gig, he was joined by Currency, and they meandered down 6th Street to perform at the first iteration of the Smokers Club, the brainchild of Hazy Afternoon Hangs with Smoke Dizza, Stephen Othello, and the head of cinematic music group, Johnny Shipes. At that same free event as Wiz, Currency, Dizza, Devin the Dude, Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q, and J-Rock, was a quiet kid in glasses from Meridian, Mississippi, named Big Crit. Crit was thoughtful, focused, and precise. Johnny Shipes, a loud and jolly pothead, was as good a talent scout as there was. Shipes heard Crit's music and thought he was a genius combination of Andre 3000 and UGK, so he reached out on MySpace over and over and over again. This is Big Crit. MySpace was a place where so many people hitting you up. And Johnny Shipes, the cinematic music group, reached out to me uh, even about R.I.P. the homie Nip. Like, yo, this guy, this artist Nipsey, you on, on, like, I need some beats for you for him. And uh, I mentioned, like, I, you know, I work with Sean Kingston. And me, I'm like, mm, I don't know if you really do. Like, I'm like, I don't, I mean, this is the internet where people are taking baked shoes and clothes and cars and like copying and pasting them in their own little bios and stuff. And it could be anybody. But it took literally like four years for me to really believe you. Like he was actually hitting me from a genuine place. And I remember sitting down and watching Nipsey perform on the BT Hip Hop Awards one year. And uh, I was like, oh, snap. Like, oh yeah, he's, he's really about what he's talking about. It was crazy. Messages on MySpace apparently only went so far, so Shipes had to show how much he believed. He and Stephen Othello, who helped Mickey Fax with his digital rollouts, brought in the filmmakers Kuti and Chike, and they all flew down to Mississippi. Crit was super shy. He was like the most shyest artist I've ever met at one point, right? Like, he was just like, who the fuck are these New York guys in a New York style, talking to New York shit in Mississippi? But he was open. Like, again, he was one of those artists that was, like, open to the idea. Because we know, like, it says a lot when you, like, really believe in an artist and you'll travel all the way to Meridian, Mississippi to go shoot some videos, right? Like, that says a lot. So he fully believed. You know how it is, like with me, it's like want to have everything organized, everything together. And I had no real idea. Cootie and Chike to me really kind of started the whole, we don't need a treatment right now. We just going to go down there and shoot. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm like, okay, bet. Just take us to where you, where you know, like all your hangout spots where you like to be at. Oh, these ain't the safest spots to be. You know what I'm saying? But we can go. And man, everybody was just so down for it. 
Crit's celebrations and setbacks were equally poetic, as evidenced all across his best body of work to date, the May 2010 mixtape called Crit Was Here. On his song Children of the World, he mixed a triumphant choir and staccato drums with the yearning of a young, desperate man who put everything on the line to make it as a musician. Crit wouldn't wait any longer for anyone's cosign. He'd take the big step and put his trust in Shipes and the millions of other strangers on the internet. I was always in this bubble, like where I just make music, I put it out. I kind of didn't like to like read the comments or no hands on what people thought about my music. I just wanted to like, all right, I'll put this out, this is how I feel, and then I'm going to go perform it. And so a lot of those OGs were very much aware of where I was coming from and then more excited because I was like coming from a Mississippi perspective. And But it was like tailored to still be very much lyrical. Like I was still like combating and like trying to do long freestyles and like show my lyricism. And so they were excited that I wasn't falling into this gap of where I was just going to be this artist that was going to just make a certain kind of music and be done with it. Like, oh, no, you're trying, you're looking for longevity. Shipes would surround Crit with the right collaborators and put him on the right stages. The Smokers Club tour, a traveling circus of the best cannabis indulging rappers, would sell a lifestyle, sell the live experience off the blogs, and sell a kid from the sixth biggest city in Mississippi to the world. Independent tours and merch and distribution had all proven that blog rap was mainstream rap, and the major labels could no longer afford to sit on the sidelines. Where the majors had for so long ignored or tried to shut down the internet's offerings, every A&R from every label was now scrolling down Na Right with their checkbooks out. Mickey Fax. Sycamore, who was at Atlantic at the time, he reached out, Jeff Sledge. Lenny S, we met with Def Jam, we met with Koch, we met with Mike Karen at Atlantic. We were kids, we didn't know what to make of anything. But it was a great feeling to know that people wanted to kind of work with me in that capacity. Wiz Khalifa had built up an enormous and loyal fan base around the United States thanks to two years of constant touring, a schedule he modeled off of the emo rock powerhouse Fallout Boy. After my split with Warner, nobody really approached me until Atlantic, and anybody who did, we scared them off, so <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't anything going on there. Like, the whole weed shit was real dangerous at that time because it wasn't as accepted as it is now. We were bad people, yo. Like, we made sure anywhere we went, we just smoked it out, so we just instantly just separated ourselves from everybody. So it was like buildings, labels, they didn't want us there because we smelled like weed or we were smoking their buildings or they didn't want to come to our sessions because we were smoking them the fuck out of there. Like we made sure if you wanted to be around us, you had to you had to know how we would get down. And a lot of people did make it past the door. So it's all good. But in becoming one of the biggest independent touring acts in the country, 
Wiz also found a glass ceiling. My main goal is to always uh, reach further. And with the mixtape crowd, I felt like I had done the most that I could do being independent, especially with my merch. I remember we went to jail at that time and our bail was $3 million and we were able to bail out. So we were making a lot of money at the time. So that wasn't really the thing that I was looking for. It was more about the reach of my music and to broaden my career and to do things that I couldn't do for myself. And I felt like a good team at Atlantic could put those things together and provide opportunities for me that I couldn't do for myself. The cool kids had not only earned $1.4 million in a calendar year, but also the chance to turn offers down. Somebody tried to sign me and Mikey for our masters for $2,000. Like, man, I've seen it all. Similarly, Dom Kennedy didn't see the point in signing. I remember meeting with uh, the main lady at one of the big ones in New York, and she was asking me, who do I see myself being? Shout out to Sean and like Drake and J. Cole, and they was like trying to see if I was wanting to be in those type of conversations, if that was the class I wanted to be in. I turned down more money for show than a lot of people still get today, right now. I don't want to feel like a fraud. Like, you can't pay me, and then what my music going to be about? What am I going to be about? I'm just going to be making songs about nothing. I remember when one label, the actual deal breaker was guilt. They was like, you want so much money that we'll give it to you, but we need even extra. And I was about to do a commercial with, like, a big company and get more and get money already on my own. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, so I would have to give you a piece of this? And we already doing this, and we don't even need you to do this? You feel me? For what? For what? But teaming with a major made sense for Wale. He signed to Interscope. Asher Roth partnered with Steve Rifkin. B.O.B. went to Atlantic. Big Sean signed to Kanye West's Good Music imprint. Drake and Nicki Minaj signed with Young Money Cash Money. And Big Crit signed with the most historic hip-hop label of them all. You think about me knowing with Def Jam, with hip-hop, and what it represents. I, in my brain, was like, man, Mississippi Southern artists signed to Def Jam. Because you know Def Jam is like the house of hip-hop vibe, you know what I'm saying? And I knew what that would garner and what that would look like. And then the, something like, okay, bet. I mean, I'm with Def Jam, so they know I'm a spitter. I wanted people to also understand and respect the lyricism that I had. And I knew if I was going to go anywhere, that's the place that you go. Because, you know, that's going to make a lot of people on blog sites that might not have liked your music be like, oh, he signed with Def Jam? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ever since he left Lil Wayne's Young Money imprint, Currency believed he'd made the right decision, even if his friends didn't understand. A couple of my buddies would come over and try to reality check me. One time, and this was honest and pure, McMahon told me and was like, bro, think about all the stuff you said you wanted to buy for your mom and dad. Because this was right when I left. He's like, bro, you got the single, weather cash in, all this stuff. He's like, think of all the stuff you said you wanted to buy for your mom and dad. Bro, they just got to wait. I'm like, I just can't get it this year. You know what I'm saying? They're my mom and dad. They'll, they'll, they'll wait. They'll be down. You know what I'm saying? Currency landed at the doorstep of a four-story building in Tribeca, New York City, an artist enclave in the vision of Andy Warhol. Only this version's Andy was the loud, brash, and brilliant former partner of Rockefeller Records' Damon Dash. 
This art gallery slash recording studio slash inspiration headquarters was known as DD-172, and it was the pinnacle of independence. After the breakup of his business with Jay-Z, Dame went in a new direction. Rather than try to break the next big solo rapper, he cultivated a community. His focus was purely on art, angering a few neighbors and a few creditors. But he built a creative space where artists of all kinds would come and go as they pleased, collaborating across platforms and genres. At any time, you could bump into Yasin Bey, Kudi and Chike, Amanda Seals, Swizz Beats, or Jay Electronica. People worked when they felt like it. People smoked like it was work. There were basement parties with the cool kids on stage and giant garbage bins filled with cans of PBR. Currency felt right at home. Dame understood how the system as it was had created walls, all to the artist's detriment. This new generation was nothing like one he used to work with. It was unique, and Currency was special as he told the video blog, The Life Files. Everybody was a herd, nobody stuck together. So it wasn't even about like, if you wasn't from my block, I wasn't fucking with you. So Bad Boy didn't work with us. We didn't work with Cash Money. We didn't work with anybody. We didn't work with Wu-Tang. We should have, but we we were just dumb about it. Spitter is linked with every state in this mother. Chicago, the cool kids, Pittsburgh, Wiz, uh, Most Def, uh, Jay Electronica, Tabby Benet, Washington. All these people from all these different states, Big Crit, Mississippi, Devin the Dude, Houston, Nipsey Hustle, LA. He's good everywhere. He goes to shows by himself. That's unheard of in rap, period. Like going to shows with a CD, no friends, no DJ, no nothing, no security. Let's get out. Get in, get out. And not long after distributing his most acclaimed albums, Pilot Talk and Pilot Talk 2 through Dame's label, Currency got a call from Todd Moskowitz, who was then president of Warner Brothers Records. Todd invited him to his home to watch a New York Jets game. Spitta knew he'd get an offer and was ready to tell him no. I really run off vibes, bro. Todd was cool. It was like, you'll leave here a millionaire for sure, if you want to. Like, that's what was said before we started eating or watching the game or anything like it's just a football watch party and you're in town so we want you to come by but we might as well hash this out if you want and then the jets won and i was like that's a good omen and i could leave here a millionaire so it's like yeah just fucking i mean like right now a millionaire right now or you gotta call me in a week and then it clears like no nah, right now and so i'm like oh what the fuck yeah just fucking do it so at that point once i did that I just fucking cashed, I bought the Ferrari out my out my internet money, like out the money I was making from like doing shows and like all the South by Southwest and shit, and shit like that, like all those, so I was just stacking up that bread and then I was like, oh well, I don't have to sustain myself off this no more because I got this, so let me just act like a rapper right quick, in a conservative fashion, you know? Currency, like so many of his peers, had gone against the grain, bet on himself, and saw things through. Well, you know what, bro? I was raised in the 80s, and every movie ever was based on that. Every movie ever was the one kid not gonna run with the group, he's gonna do his own thing, they're gonna ridicule him because he's not with the group, and then he, he has to face the group, or uh, the karate champ at the end, or whatever, and the other guys have to give him the respect. Like, man, you know, bro? 
you did that. Even if they kick his ass, like, damn, dude, you fucking, you did that shit. So that's what happened. With the 2009 XXL freshman cover, the bar had been reset. The work of Eske, Hoff, Minya, Gotti, Modi of DC to BC, and everyone else was proven. The artists they found and championed were the new Jay-Z's, the new 50 Cent's, the new DMX's, Wale, Kid Cudi, Charles Hamilton, Blue, Corey Guns, Currency, Mickey Fax and Ace Hood, as well as B.O.B. and Asher Roth, who would perfectly record the mix of emotions on their song, Fuck the Money. Well, I'm a, make a lot of money. A&R manager and event promoter Dominique Maldonado. So something like the freshman cover, it was like, it felt like more than just throwing everybody a bone. There's now going to be a lane for the mainstream to acknowledge and like track the growth of these artists and knowing that it would be really interesting to see that happen. Andrew Barber of Fake Shore Drive. Back then, YouTube numbers didn't really tell the whole story. It was like, if you could just got posts on a lot of blog, but your video only got like 5,000 plays, it didn't matter. You still had a real shot at getting that cover. It kind of almost leveled the playing field, which I thought was dope. Rich Kleiman, who took on management duties with Wale. I mean, I think in 2009, the thing about that cover and the thing about opportunities like that is because they were so few and far between, the stakes and the relevancy of these things were so great. And the awareness that came from it was so great. And it didn't necessarily translate in sales or translate in fans, but it was a cementing of your brand to the rest of the industry. It did put you on the spot in the industry, but it also put the clock ticking because we were judging everybody on that first cover by the greats in rap before us because there was no cover there was unsigned hype there was mixtapes but the net freshman cover now was like these are who are the best young rappers so if you don't make it that's your fault but it also created this in, immense pressure like i i could feel it you know it was a competition it was damn how'd they get on the cover how'd they get the bigger look damn why does everybody always talk about that guy but it was the original, like, knighting of what's next in some ways in this hip-hop internet generation. Dick Swan Thomas said if, if they would have flopped, he would have lost the job. But at that time, it was one of the biggest magazines sales-wise ever because of what the internet did. But Mickey, the leader of that downtown scene, the most recognizable face of the blog era, the centerpiece of that double XL cover, found himself the last artist of that freshman class without a record deal. Stephen Othello. We got attention. We had mad meetings. We was poor. That's what people got to understand. Like, during that time, we were broke. We had no money. Like, we were successful in the sense of, like, being on blogs. But, you know, we weren't making any money. You couldn't really put a value on the shows like how you wanted to, like how it is now. We was probably getting, like, $500 a show, and it was selling out. And, um... You know, we just had no money like that. So we would do, like, meetings with labels just to have a meal. Out of all the A&Rs they met with, Mickey and Steven knew Jeff Sledge from Jive Records the longest. 
since Jeff invited them up to the offices in 2006. He understood Mick as an artist. Um, and he was just like a big brother to us in that way. Like, he was like a real support system. Like, he was around when we were in the studio just playing. Here's Jeff Sledge. The GFC squad did a lot you know, to kind of get Mickey to where he was to the point where we were ready to sign him. But, you know, they're kids. They have no money. They're, you know, from the Robin Peter to pay Paul. I had did the cover of Double XL. He was, you know, definitely uh, giving me words of wisdom for that. And then, you know, the Honda commercial. And then I went to Atlanta and I did about 20 songs in like 10 days. I sent them to Jeff. And I sent them to uh, Lenny S. And I also sent them to uh, Glassnow, the place where uh, Childish Gambino eventually signed. And all three parties were interested in doing a deal with us. Jeff was letting us know about Battery Records. They had Diamond and Crime Off there. And he was like, you know, it could be, you know, we can activate you guys as an indie. And you guys can still do what you guys do and we can make it happen. Battery Records was an independent arm of the behemoth Jive Records. Jive was home to groups like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, and infamously for a year, Papoose, who signed for the jaw-dropping amount of $1.5 million. For Jeff, it was a no-brainer. Not only did the music always connect for him, but Stephen and Mickey understood the internet and digital marketing better than the staffs at record labels. So anywhere they'd sign would get way more bang for the buck. It was really just more about muscle and trying to listen to their ideas and listen to their marketing and their thought process because they had these visions of how they thought the music business could be different and more artist-friendly and you know move out the way and let the young guys kind of run with their vision. That's what I was trying to do with GFC at Jive. I wanted to kind of give them an opportunity to run with their vision because they obviously knew and had their fingers on the pulse. Crucially for Mickey, Battery wanted him just as much as he wanted them. It only took maybe about a month of negotiating and we signed that deal in April of 2010 and it was definitely different, you know, for us at the time because we hadn't, we never had a situation, we never had a co-sign, you know, the Mickey Sykes brand wasn't, you know, it was just basically the internet. He'd have access to Jive's radio team, their video team, and their publicity team. But operating under the battery umbrella, they'd have none of the baggage. You know, when I signed Mickey, that was like, oh shit, Mickey Sykes on Jive, like that's like a big thing, you know? Mickey Sykes was ready to join his fellow freshmen in graduating from the blogs. Finally, when he had the opportunity to do something, when he was at Jive, he brought something to the table and it worked. Well, it, 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 I wouldn't say it worked, but it uh, put some money in our pocket at least. The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlis. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is The Blog Era.